If you've got your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 7. We are wrapping up our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're getting into what my husband likes to call the Great Invitation. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see not only is he inviting us, but he's commanding us to enter in through the narrow gate and to follow him on that narrow path that leads to life. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, I want us to pause at this, and we're going to look just at these first two verses to begin with. And we know that when Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, he started with the heart. Remember all the blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek or gentle, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As he walked through the Beatitudes, he was speaking to us literally going into the heart. We said it's much deeper than that, right? It is not external conformity to the law. It is an internal transformation of the heart. So Jesus begins by addressing the heart, and then he moves into what our actions will look like once our heart has been captured by him and transformed by the Holy Spirit. R.A. Torrey said, if loving God with all of our heart and soul and might is the greatest commandment, then it follows that not loving him that way is the greatest sin. Now let that sink in just a moment. I think because we're so familiar with that scripture that we can spout it without even really thinking about it. But that is a command to love the Lord with our whole being. And if we're commanded to love him that way, we know it is for our good that God has commanded it. And it is in loving him that sin loses its power over us. But it's a choice. Just like this invitation we're going to see is a choice. In fact, the theme of choice runs all the way through Scripture. And I've given you just a, just a sampling of places where we see choice. It all began in the garden, right? <laughs> the Lord put Adam and Eve in the garden. He created them, and he put them in a perfect environment. And in that very perfect environment, sin entered. They were given access to every tree in the garden. They could eat from anything in the garden except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but beside that tree was the tree of life. So Adam and Eve were given a choice, a choice to believe God, to believe that God is good, just as he declared everything that he had created was good. They could choose whether to believe God was good or to believe the voice of the enemy who would put doubt in their hearts and actually deny the word of God. He was enticing them to rebel, to try to design life the way they wanted it to be, where they get to call the shots instead of submitting to and trusting that God's design was good and would be good for them as well. Well, we know what happened. They chose to listen to the voice of the enemy, and rebellion and sin entered the garden and entered our hearts. So the issue is we're all born sinners. We're born separated from God because of the sinfulness that's been passed down to us. So we see from the very beginning, God designed choice. It's part of what being created in the image of God really means. We are created for relationship, but he will not coerce us to love him. He invites us. 
In fact, the scripture says he won't even coerce us to repent of our sin or to acknowledge our sin. In fact, it says his loving kindness is what draws us to repentance. Over and over, the leaders that God would raise up throughout the Old Testament were constantly putting before the people a choice. Moses did that. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, God had already given them the book of the law, and Moses went over all of it at the end of Deuteronomy, back over all the laws of God, commanding the people to be obedient. And it's in those scriptures that we see all the if-then scriptures, and I encourage you to highlight those, underline them as you're reading the Bible. Every time the Bible says, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do not, then this will happen. Remember, they're equally promises. Promise is a blessing, but also a promise that there will be a curse for rebellion. It's the consequences of our sin. And after he rehearsed them for them, what did he say? Today, I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. Choose life that you may live, you and your descendants. So he's giving us the choice. God says, this is how I designed life to work for your well-being, for your flourishing, for your happiness. And if you will choose to obey, these blessings will literally overtake you. They will come upon you. But if you choose to rebel, these are are the consequences. These are the curses that will come after you. But it's your choice. Same with Joshua. Joshua was appointed by God to lead the people into the promised land. And what did he do just before he died? He called everybody together. He went back over the commands of God. And what did he say? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We must choose. The psalmist said, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We see over and over there are only two ways. It's the way of obedience or the way of rebellion. It's the way of blessing or the way of curse. It's the way of life or the way of death. The psalmist tells us, the book of Proverbs tells us that. When we look at the two women described in Proverbs, wisdom and folly. Proverbs 1 through 9, when you look at these two personified women, wisdom and folly, you see with wisdom all the blessings associated with her obedience to the word of God, her reverential fear of God, and yet all the curses that follow folly or the worldly woman, the woman who wants to live the way of the world and make her own decisions apart from God. The prophets warned the people over and over. And we know in the northern kingdom, they didn't even have one good king. And consequently, they were taken off into Assyrian captivity almost 150 years before the southern kingdom because the southern kingdom did have a few good kings. And it was during the reign of some of these kings near the end of the time of the southern kingdom that Jeremiah prophesied. And he said, I set before you the way of life and death. So we see that this invitation that Christ is giving at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is nothing new, right? It is actually what God has been teaching all the way through Scripture, what he has revealed to us from the very beginning. And Jesus is wrapping up his sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, the longest collection of his teachings in one spot in all of Scripture. And he wraps it up with this great invitation. And what does he say? Enter, and it is a command, enter through the narrow gate. If you're going to be on the path that leads to life, the path that leads to heaven, the life, the path that leads to blessing, you have to enter the small gate, the narrow gate. And what's interesting about that is that if you're going to enter a small gate, you've got to be small, right? What did Jesus say? Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So we know we go in poor in spirit, 
recognizing we have nothing to offer and we're coming in by the grace of God alone. And you can also only go by yourself. You can't bring anybody with you. You can't take any baggage with you. You can't take anything or anyone. You go alone and you enter in through that small gate. And we know Jesus is the gate. He's the door into the sheepfold. So we enter in through Jesus or we do not enter. And I know I was talking to someone not long ago and trying to explain to them, yes, Jesus was exclusive, but what incredible grace that God has provided the way through Jesus. He's not obligated to offer us a way back to him. But because he loves us, he sent his only son to be the way, the door, for us to enter into life and experience right relationship with him once again. But we must come through Jesus. Nice people will say, but my God wouldn't send anyone to hell. My God just wants people to be sincere. Basically, all roads lead to heaven. That is not what Jesus said. He made it very clear that we must choose and that he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Leon Morris in his commentary said, Matthew's Jesus is appealing both for an evangelical decision, the gate, the point of salvation, and for an ethical endurance, the way, for living out the Christian life. Taken together then, the narrow gate and the tough way are simply the difficult choice for Jesus and the constantly challenging decisions for discipleship to him. It is death to the flesh. It is not easy in the natural the only way we can do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Life in Christ isn't natural. It really does take dying to the flesh on a daily basis, which is what Jesus told those who were following him. If you want to come after me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now think about how many of you have ever tried to learn a different language, a new language, one that was not your native tongue. Well, in high school, I took Latin. I do not know why. So wish I had spent all that time studying Spanish or a language that I could actually speak, but it never came natural for me. And I honestly can't remember anything of the two years that I spent studying Latin because it never became natural. Some of you can actually speak fluently in another language, but what does it take? It takes incredible amount of practice and time and really sometimes going and actually spending time in that culture, immersing yourself in it so that then it becomes more natural. In fact, I've talked to missionaries who have really, their, their new language has become what they call their heart language. And they said, you know, it happens when you start thinking in that language and dreaming in that language. <laughs> I can just tell you, I never thought... <laughs> or had a dream in Latin. <laughs> so it was never natural for me. But that is actually a pretty good analogy for living the spirit-filled life. Because it's easy for us to go back to the flesh. It's easy or natural for us to go back to depending upon our own reasoning. We have to die to that and instead Think the thoughts of God's word. Ask Jesus Christ through his spirit to take over our body, to fill us with this Holy Spirit, because we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, it is an inside-out, upside-down kingdom. It is not natural to love your enemies. It's not natural to choose forgiveness. It's not natural to pray for those who persecute you. That is not natural to the flesh, but it is in the kingdom of God. It's the literal 
air that we breathe in his kingdom. It is the life he has called us to. And as we daily choose to die to our flesh and take up our cross and follow Jesus, the more we do it, the more natural it becomes. Until we begin to think the word of God. Until we begin to view life through the lens of God's word. But it takes immersing ourselves in his word and immersing ourselves in the culture of Christ. Letting the kingdom of God become the kingdom that we focus on. And that's what Christ is calling us to. And I love this from Michael Green in his commentary. He said, Christianity is not about being very good or very bad or very comfortable. It's about being in God's kingdom or staying out. It's about allegiance to God or rebellion. It's about being on the road that starts narrow but opens out into the life of heaven or staying on the broad road of our self-centeredness until it contracts to a dead halt in final destruction. That's exactly what Christ, that's what he's saying to all of those who just heard this message. There are really only two gates, two paths, and two destinations, and we must choose. Now, he goes on to give a warning. He says, beware of the false prophets, in verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter this next verse shakes me to the core. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, and this is Jesus speaking, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What does he begin talking about? Wolves in sheep's clothing, those who look like Christians. And how does he say we're to know them? By the fruit of their life. And what should be the fruit of our life? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? So in the way that we love the Lord and the way that we love and serve others, it should be evident that we are followers of Jesus Christ by the fruit that our life bears. And you better believe a good tree will not produce bad fruit, not consistently. And a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It will not happen. So they'll know us by the fruit of our lives, just as we will know those who are false prophets or false teachers by the fruit of their lives. We have a lot of false teachers out there today. We have people who are teaching to grow their own platform. We have people that are teaching much like Paul said to Timothy in the last time, there will be those who gather teachers around them that tell them what they want to hear. Some people call one sect of this progressive Christianity. It is not progressive. It is diabolical. They have opened the door to the enemy, and they are telling people, basically, you can live however you want to because God won't send you to hell. You can profess to be a Christian and yet live like the world and still be a Christian. That is not what Jesus says. 
That is a lie from the enemy who's been lying to us from the beginning. I have given you two excellent resources. If you have children, I highly recommend children or grandchildren that you get Mama Bear Apologetics. It's written by several women. It is an excellent resource. Um, And then also another gospel, which is written by Elisa Childers, where she's exposing progressive Christianity and comparing it to what God's Word says and showing you where they fall short um, or open us up. They've loosened the Word of God. You know, that's what liberalism does. It loosens the Word, and legalism adds to the Word. You understand that, right? We know very clearly that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20, He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, that literally means to loosen or do away with, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the scribes and Pharisees tried to be perfect and they were legalists. They added to the law. The problem was their hearts were not there. And that's what Jesus is doing as he's rebuking them in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you do all the outward things to conform to the law, but your hearts are hardened. You don't care for the poor. You don't take care of the widow. Your heart is not with the Lord. Your heart is not indicative of the beatitude. You don't have the attitudes of Christ. And he's calling them out on that. So we line our lives up with the truth of God's word. And in that, in his word is where we find freedom and life, and joy. We're going to find pain and separation. Not that the Christian life is easy. It's not easy because it calls us to die, but it is incredibly significant, and it fills us with incredible joy and freedom as we learn to live the Christ life, as we follow Jesus and make him our example, the one that we model, the one that we desire to imitate. When we become more like Christ, we find that the things of this world lose their hold on us and we have a kingdom perspective and a kingdom vantage point and we're able to live as Christ did who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. We too fix our eyes on Jesus and we too look to the joy that has been prepared for us. The joy that eye has not seen and ear has not heard all that God has prepared for those who love him. So he's taking us to the judgment seat where we will stand before Christ because Jesus is the one who said to them, I never knew you. He's talking about the judgment. The judgment will be where the truth is revealed and those who practice lawlessness will not be allowed to enter. Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, what does that mean? Lawlessness is sin. 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law of God. Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5, and I want us to look at what Paul said in Galatians 5, 16 through 21. And he's talking about to them about how to live in the Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit, be guided by the Holy Spirit. 
He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, now listen to this, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This breaks my heart because in the United States of America, there are a large percentage of people that if you ask them would say, I'm a Christian. They may even come to church on every other Sunday morning and they think they're good because they've given their nod to God. But they live however they want to, basically Monday through Saturday. That is not what Christ taught. It's not how he lived. And for us to think we can live any way we want to and God's going to give us a bye, that's not why Jesus died. He died to forgive us from our sin, to set us free from our sin so that we're no longer living entangled in the sin of this world, but that we're set free from it, that we literally are lifted through the Holy Spirit above the sin of this world. Not that we're ever going to be perfect, but we will walk in greater and greater levels of freedom until the day we see Jesus. You know, Steve and I have kind of laughed at this stage of life when you're an empty nester and your kids are parenting. You feel like you know more about parenting now. You kind of wish you could go back and do it all over. And there's so many things like that. You feel like, God, about the time we kind of sort of think we have it figured out, we're going to be in heaven. You know, it's like you almost feel like wish you could go back and get a do-over, right? But we don't. We don't get a do-over. So let's try to get it right right now. And the, the only way you can do that is to die. It is literally abandoning ourselves, surrendering to him and saying, Lord, show me how to line my life up with you. And he is so tender, so merciful, so gracious that he doesn't hit, it with, hit us with all of it at once. He just gives us one at a time. You know, and sometimes he gives you a little, a little uh, pass for, for, for a little while where it's like, okay, he gives you a breather, right? And then he, he opens up something else, a motive or, a, you know, a, a sinful desire, a, a, an exaltation of self. You know, humility, as we've said before, is not demeaning ourselves. It's not exalting ourselves. It's not thinking about ourselves. That's just it. We have chosen to set our mind on things above. We've chosen to fix our eyes on Jesus. And there's incredible freedom in that. That's when you're able to be unoffendable because you've chosen not to be offended, because you've chosen to love others, because you've chosen to cast them in the best light, because it's not all about you. It's about advancing the kingdom of God. And when we do that, we no longer live for ourselves. We're living for Jesus. And what incredible joy, what incredible joy comes with giving ourselves away and allowing him to be the, not only the priority, but the center of our lives, out of which everything else radiates. You know, when missionaries come back to the United States after being in countries where People don't know the Lord. They're persecuted. It's dangerous for them to become Christ followers. And they see people commit their lives to Jesus Christ knowing they could die because they've committed their life to him. And they come back to the United States where so many people say they're Christians and yet you can't tell them apart from the world. 
in the way they talk, in the way they dress, in the way they entertain themselves, in the way they spend their money. We are to be different. We are to live for the kingdom of heaven that is among us now in the Holy Spirit, but that we will experience fully when Christ comes again and welcomes us in. But it terrifies me to think that I might teach someone who thinks they're a believer because they walked an aisle or signed a card. We are commanded to examine ourselves to make sure we're in the faith. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail the test? Do you have a hunger for God's word? Do you desire to know him more intimately? Do you desire for others to know Christ? Are you praying for the lost? Do you hunger to be in fellowship with other believers? Because I can tell you, the longer you walk with him, the more delighted you are to be around other believers who love Jesus and to commune with them and fellowship with them and then to draw others in that they too might know Jesus and the incredible life that he offers us in such abundance. Well, he closes up by telling us there's two foundations. We've seen there are two gates, there's two paths, there's false and true prophets, good and bad trees, good and bad fruit. There are those who think they're believers, but when they stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, he's going to tell them, I never knew you. Just because you claim to know him doesn't get you in. Does he know you? Have you surrendered your life and your will? Because ultimately, that's what it is. They did the outward things. I mean, they called him Lord. They were serving in the church. Some of them taught. They did those things. But their will had not been submitted to his will because they were still practicing lawlessness. They were still living according to their own will, their own desires. And God says, until you submit yourself to me and I become your Lord, I don't know you. And he goes on to say, here's the two foundations. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, see, not just hearing, not just claiming, but acting. It becomes a part of our life. It's exactly what Jesus has taught on the Sermon on the Mount, that we're to make this a part of how we act, who we are. And acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He wasn't quoting other rabbis. <laughs> he was speaking the truth because he is the truth, because he is the word of God. And he was revealing the truths of the kingdom to them. And he said, those of you who have heard these teachings and you build your life on them, with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we enter in through that small gate 
at salvation, but then we die to our flesh daily that we might walk that narrow path that leads to life. And it's a daily choosing Christ. When you do that, you are a wise person building your life on the rock of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the storms are going to come and they're going to beat against your house. But if your house is founded, your life is founded upon the truth of Jesus Christ and you have a personal relationship with him, your house will stand. And not only will it stand in this life, you will stand at the judgment. And Jesus himself will welcome you into his kingdom, the one he has prepared for us. But if you're building your life upon yourself or upon the world, the storms will come just like they do in the life of a believer. And your house will fall. And not only that, when you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, you will not stand and you will be cast away. And you will hear those dreadful words, I never knew you. I never knew you. You'll know you're his by the fruit of your life. I want us to take a moment this morning to examine ourselves. Heaven forbid that we should hear such a strong word from our Savior and not pause to examine ourselves, to take for granted that we know him. But let's ask ourselves, does Jesus know me? And that word for know means intimate, experientially, Does he know you?